uh, before we do that, let's just open in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you once again for this blessing, this privilege, this opportunity to come and worship you this Lord's Day. Thank you so much for the freedom that we enjoy here in this nation, at least so far, and uh, we're truly grateful for that, recognizing that this is not a privilege that all our brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus enjoy. And so we don't want to take that for granted. In fact, we want to just pray your blessing upon each and every believer that is gathered this day to worship you. Father, we just pray your blessing upon our time this morning in this uh, Sunday school lesson in the pursuit of holiness. I pray that it would be helpful, that it would be uh, encouraging, motivating to our, uh, our lives and uh, to spur us on to obedience to you out of love. And uh, we're so truly grateful to our Lord and Savior for opening the door and the opportunity to actually um, do this where normally in our previous fallen natures we couldn't. And uh, so we just want to give our thanks to you and we pray your blessing upon this time in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so just a quick recap of some of the key points. We're talking about the holiness of Christ and why that's so important for us to, to kind of wrap our eyes and ears around because we recognize right out the gate that the very best of us, those of us who live what we might call exemplary, exemplary lives, which I suppose if you're a true believer, you'd be humble enough to not even think that you would be doing that. But the fact is that we look around us and we kind of measure our holiness and our Christian spiritual walk by other believers, uh, everybody who shows up in church or people in other churches and godly men and women and that sort of thing. So we recognize that there are those who are further along the, the road, if you will, the path to holiness than we ourselves are. And yet we recognize that even they, and they would readily admit that they too uh, wrestle. Um, they're, they're not as holy as they would like to be. They struggle. And, uh, and so we we realize right out the gate, I mean, one of the fundamental truths that we know as believers is, in theologically speaking, is that we cannot merit salvation through our own personal holiness. I mean, we just cannot earn it. We cannot please God in and of ourselves. There's nothing that we can do, regardless of what we say, think, and, and do, that would, uh, would, would give any kind of... Uh, um, I don't know, uh, a merit toward, uh, before God. In fact, we, we noted that in Isaiah 64, verse 6, that our righteous deeds are like filthy garments in the light of God's holy law. So our holiness before God depends entirely on the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. That's a fundamental truth. So the only way that we can even begin to wrap our, our arms around this notion that we can be accepted in God's sight is not on our merits, but on the merits of Jesus Christ and him alone. And so we need to be firmly grounded in that reality, in, this, in, in our security rests in Christ and in him alone. And so that as we move through our Christian walk and as we experience life and all its temptations and its pitfalls and downfalls and all that, 
we, we begin to recognize our need more and more for Christ. And, uh, and as we do that, we become uh, sort of almost uh, uh, contradictory. We begin to recognize that the more we need Christ, the more we need Christ. In other words, the more we, the more we begin to think like God, and we be, the more holy we become, the more of our own wretchedness and our own sinfulness we begin to see in ourselves. And that's a healthy thing. That's not a bad thing. But it can lead to some godly, spiritual men and women becoming morbidly depressed or morbidly introspective to the point where they're where they where they are uh, they're broken and and they cannot function properly and we need to move beyond that because God expects us to and we'll talk about that just shortly a little bit more but this whole idea is that as we become more holy and Christ-like in our walk the more our uh, God reveals to us our sin, our sinfulness, and uh, we begin to uh, get dismayed at our own lack of actual holiness itself. And this should, rather than cause us to be depressed and, and, and lethargic and, and despondent, uh, you know, any of those words where you just feel tired and worn and wrung out, rather, what that should do is actually put some wind in our sails and stimulate us to a deeper yearning and a striving for holiness out of love, out of, out of just the respect that we have for God, what he's done for us. So that is kind of where we left off. Um, the second reason that we need to consider the holiness of Christ is because his life is meant to be an example for us. And so the holiness of Christ stimulates for us also the model upon which we are ourselves to walk the Christian walk or run the Christian race, whatever, however way you want to put that. Uh, Peter told us that Christ left an example for us to follow in his steps in 1 Peter 2.21. And he spoke particularly of Christ's suffering without retaliation. In fact, I'll just quickly read that for you because I think it's important to note in 1 Peter 2.21, he says, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, um, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. So he goes on and follows it up, saying, Christ laid this example for us, how we're supposed to live our lives. And he goes on and he provides an example of how Christ did that, in the sense that he, um, when he was... Um, under suffering, when he was being scourged, when he was being scorned and ridiculed for, for being the king of the Jews and, and for, for being the savior, uh, he did not um, retaliate. He could have, but he didn't. And so Christ did not commit a sin by responding in anger. He did not commit a sin by calling down the wrath of the Father upon these people, which he could have done, but that would have then 
uh, undercut his whole entire mission for the cross. And so in obedience, like a sheep before its shear, he kept silent. And he allowed that. And he's suggesting, he's saying to us, that's an example, that's a model of something that we're supposed to do as we bear up under that. And Paul reminds us that in Ephesians 5.1, he says, you know, be imitators of me. Follow my example. Here's Paul saying, even as I follow the example of Christ, follow me. And so we have godly men, we've got godly women in the world around us, in the church and fellow believers, perhaps outside the church, whatever, but they are examples that we can follow, and Christ being the supreme, the, the main example. So clearly, then, the sinless, holy life of Jesus Christ is meant to be an example for us. And, and, he, and he reminds us, he says, I always do what pleases him, that is, the Father. So Christ made it his life's ambition, his goal for coming on this planet, on earth, is to please the follow, uh, the Father. And, and I guess the, the challenge that we have is, is that our goal? Is that what we are wanting to do? Is that what we're striving to do? Are we truly willing to scrutinize all our activities, our goals and our plans, and all of our impulsive actions in light of the statement, I am doing this to please God? That's sobering. That's uh, a little bit challenging, I think, for us, because so we spend a lot of time in our thoughts, and we spend a lot of time thinking about what we need to say to somebody or how we need to react or act in, in the moment. And, uh, and so we've got to give serious consideration to what is it that we're, I'm thinking, what is it that I'm going to say and do? And uh, the thing is that when we answer this question honestly, we do begin uh, to squirm a little bit, right? Uh, we know that some of the things that we do, while they are good in and of themselves, um, oftentimes they're done for the wrong motives or wrong purposes. Sometimes we say um, we give compliments in order for people to feel good, but they also thank us for the compliment. Maybe we're just we're fishing or you know something like that. Sometimes our motives are just not necessarily right. And so we do a lot of things strictly for our own pleasure without any regard for God's glory. And you know like how do we view those who do not show love for us for example? Do we see them as people for whom Christ died? Or are, do we view them as being people who Obviously, God's bringing into our lives to make our lives miserable, <laughs> you know, challenging us to help us grow in Christ-likeness. You know, our perspective on other people is also a reflection of how we think about who Christ is and why we are in the situation that we find ourselves. So we need to learn to follow the example of Christ, who is moved with and by compassion for sinners, and uh, he could pray for them, even while he's being nailed on the cross. So even as we undergo tough times or persecution or ridicule for whatever reason, we need to give uh, consideration to how do we react or respond in that particular moment. Um, I guess there's this Scottish theologian by the name of John Brown. He says, holiness does not consist in mystic speculations or enthusiastic fervors 
you know, expressions uh, or uncommanded austerities, that is, you know, withholding of doing certain things. It consists rather in thinking as God thinks and willing as God wills. That's what holiness is. We want to think like God and we want to uh, be motivated uh, by what God would have us be motivated by. And as such, holiness doesn't mean, as is so often thought, to adhering to a list of do's and don'ts and mostly don'ts, obviously, you know, don't eat, don't drink, don't dance, don't gamble, don't smoke, don't, you know, fill in the blank, dot, 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 dot. There's all these don'ts, and if you don't do all this stuff, then you're a holy person. That's not the point. The point is that we come, and we need to come to a point where we want to focus on the positives, and we want to, rather than abstain from doing all kinds of negative things or perceived to be negative things, what we want to do, rather, is we want to shift our attention and our focus to thinking about, how can I do your will, God? It's, it's a positive. What would you have me do? Remember that old expression back in the day? I don't think, it was, I don't know, maybe 20 years ago. You see coffee cup mugs and what would Jesus do? WWJD, right? What would Jesus do? Remember those days, anyways. I think that there is a degree, an element, an aspect, you know, take out the materialistic, you know, monetary side of that. But what would Jesus do in a particular situation? And I think that's healthy and helpful for us to, re- to remember. So that in all of our thoughts, in all of our actions, in every part of our character, the ruling principle that motivates and guides us should be the desire to follow Christ in doing the will of the Father. That's what we're called to do, as, as Christ modeled that for us. And, um, you know, something that, that I'm reminded of is where Paul writes in 2 Corinthians uh, 5, verses 9, 9 and 10 in particular, but I'm just going to read um, 2 Corinthians 5, uh, verses 6 through 10. I just want to read that for your consideration. And... You know, if you don't have a life verse, if you don't have a verse that kind of really sticks in your heart, in your mind, when you think about who you are and why you're here and what's my purpose in life as a believer, I challenge you to, to adopt 2 Corinthians 5, 9 as a life verse. Let's just read verses 6 through 10, though. It says, Paul writes to them, he says, Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight, we are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. So Paul's writing there and he's saying, basically, be of good courage. You're going through tough times and um, while there's, there's this sense in which I think we can relate to this in our in our current in our current world uh, situation. There are times when we just kind of, if you don't, if you haven't felt it, you might have said it. You roll your eyes and you go, "Oh Lord, just come now, right, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus," because things are not necessarily in the greatest of shape right now. The world is in a very dire place morally spiritually, economically, politically. I mean, there's just so much 
wretchedness. And Paul is acknowledging that. I mean, he, he writes that and he says, we are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body, which is in, in heaven, and to be at home with the Lord. However, in verse 9, he says, therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. I'll reread that. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. That means whether we are in God's presence because we have passed away from our this earthly mortal coil and we are with Christ in heaven, whether we are in heaven or if we are absent out of heaven and we are still yet here on earth, he's saying we make it our ambition to be pleasing to him. That should be our life's goal, is to be pleasing to God. And four, and here's the reason why, I mean, here's an explanation or a motivating carrot, if you will. You could say it's a stick, but it's a carrot. Four, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So the idea there is there's an accountability and so if there's an accountability, ultimately, for how we live our lives, then we want to live our lives in keeping with the direction and instruction that we've been told that we ought to keep as believers. And so I think that that's healthy. And this is the high road, then, that we do want to follow in this pursuit of holiness, which we've been called to do. So let's dig into this now a little bit deeper and talk about this a change of kingdoms. The fact is that many Christians have a basic desire to live a holy life. I trust that each and every person here who's truly saved does have this basic desire to live a holy life. And unfortunately, the reality is that many of us, I'll include myself in this, have come to believe that you simply cannot attain it based on your experience, based on, based on the fact that you walk, you trip, you stumble, you fall, and then you get up, you do it again, and you do it, and then, you know, repeat the cycle over and over again. Some people struggle for years with particular sins or deficiencies in character, and uh, perhaps maybe there are others who, uh, while they don't actually wrestle with or struggle with gross sin in their life, like really obvious, blatant sins in their life, they have more or less given up ever ta- attaining to a life of holiness and have settled down for a life of uh, moral mediocrity with which neither you yourself, me, myself, or God is pleased. You kind of settle for a I don't know, just a blah kind of a life because you you figure there isn't actually any alternative to that. You figure, I've tried, I have tried, and I I just can't, I can't make it happen. And the, the promise of Romans 6, verses 6 and 7, seems impossible. It seems beyond you. And just to refresh your memories, the, the, the text in Romans 6, verses 6 and 7, Paul writes to the Romans and he says, For we know that our old self was crucified with him 
so that the body of sin might be rendered powerless, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. All right, so Paul's writing that to the Romans. He's writing that to us, and he's saying that our old self was crucified with Christ. When Christ was nailed to the cross and he died on the cross, that was us just as much. If we are in Christ, if we're saved, if we are a believer, if we've been renewed by the Holy Spirit, we are dead. We're dead to our old self. And this strong command, this promise of Scripture, can actually only serve to frustrate many believers because they're going, that's not a reality in my life. I don't know what you're talking about, Paul, but I don't know where you get off and telling me that I'm dead to sin because I experience sin every day. Whether I commit it, I see it, I'm exposed to it. Yeah, you know, I think if you're honest, you do commit it. So many have sought to live a holy life by their own willpower, and others have sought it solely by faith. So either gut it out, you know, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, or you uh, live it in faith, and you agonize in prayer over particular sins, and seemingly without any success, you pray and you pray, you sin, you say something, you do something, you're, you're addicted to something, and you're trying to break it, and you swear off of it, and you say, I'm not going to do this ever again, and then the next day or a few days later or a couple of weeks later, you're at it and you do it again. And you're, I'm such a failure and you're, and, you're, and you're down in the dumps. Scores of books have been written to help us discover the secret of the victorious life, right? We know that. <clears throat> a lot of bookshelves, not that there's any Christian bookstores any out there anymore, except maybe with the exception of the Serbans and a few others. But anyways, the fact is that you go and you buy books, and you can get titles that talk about victorious Christian living. And a lot of them, unfortunately, are kind of anchored on the prosperity gospel and all those things. But the thing is, in search for answers to our sin problems, this troublesome question arises, and that is, what should I look to God for, and what am I personally responsible for myself? And many people are confused on this point, and I think I introduced this this conundrum, if you will, right at the very, if not the first lesson, then the second anyways, and this one that we all struggle with. So what does God do, and what am I responsible for? And when we first start to live in the Christian life, we basically and confidently assume that we will simply discover what the Bible says God wants us to do, and that's the truth. I mean, and and many... uh, well-meaning uh, pastors and brothers and sisters in the Lord and uh, our moms and dads or whatever, when you come to saving faith, you basically, they, they tell you, you know, read, read your Bible and do what it says, right? I mean, basically, I mean, in summary, and, and just start doing it. And we fail, however, to deal with this tendency uh, that we have in our sinful natures uh, to kind of cling to and still be glued to, to some extent, our old sinful ways. And uh, it's just important, I just want to, just a side note here, in that the material we're going to be covering in, in this next little bit um, is, um, I don't want to rationalize or justify any sin in anyone's life, 
Okay, because we're talking about sin. We're talking about the fact that we do sin. We acknowledge that. There's a provision for sin. We acknowledge that. But when we talk about that and we realize that living a holy spiritual life is difficult, it's a calling, it's an ongoing war and struggle that we wage throughout our lives, when even as we recognize and accept that, that doesn't mean that we go, okay, well, if it's a struggle, if it's a war, and I'm going to be doing this for the rest of my life, I guess I don't really need to be too concerned about it. It's actually kind of normal and natural. And I don't want to swing the pendulum to that point where we go and just shrug our <clears throat> There's a provision, uh, you know, Christ's provision uh, for sin covers it all. Yes, he does. But the point is, even as we acknowledge and recognize our, the, the nature of, of our sin, uh, the, the struggle that is within, that we don't acquiesce to it. We don't, we don't accept it and we don't embrace it. It's not a license to go on sinning because it's hard. What it is, is it's a motivator to us to put off sin despite its difficulty so that we live a life holy and pleasing to God. Right? Does that make sense? So I think the idea here is that like after we experience this great deal of uh, frustration and failure with sin in our, our, our lives and our, out of, as a result of our sinful nature, um, sometimes we'll hear people say something like, uh, you've been trying to live your, your life, your Christian life, on the energy of the flesh. Some people will, will say that. Uh, you need to stop trying and start trusting. Or you probably have heard the expression, let go and let God, right? I mean, we've heard that because sometimes we, we've reached the end of it. Like, I've tried, I've tried, I've tried, I've tried. I keep trying, I keep missing the mark, I keep failing, stumbling, sinning. And then somebody, somebody really, really trying to be very helpful will say, you need to stop trying in your own power. You need to start relying on the Holy Spirit's power, and you need to let go, and you need to let God. And so if you just turn your problem, your whatever it is, your sin problem over to Christ and to rest in his finished work on Calvary, you, he will then live his life in us, and we will experience a life of victory over sin. That's been said. I've heard it said, and I'm fairly confident that if you've been a believer for any length of time, and if you've ever confessed you're struggling in your Christian walk with sin to somebody else, you may have heard that too. And if you, if you haven't, you will, at some point in time, run across somebody who says that. And they're well-meaning. They, they genuinely do want to try to encourage you and say, well, you know what, if, you're, if, you're just, if it's all in your own power, of course we're, we're unable. And, uh, you know, having experienced failure and frustration with our sin problems, obviously we'd be delighted to be told that God has already done that, what we need, and all we need to do is just rest in Christ's finished work. I mean, that would be liberating, that would be embracing, and... Uh, this, this new idea that, uh, you know, that 
we can just let go and let God is like a life preserver, if you will, thrown to a drowning person. It's, it's like, uh, as Bridges points out, he says, it's like hearing the gospel for the first time. It's like, oh, it isn't of works. It's not, it's not of works that any man should boast, right? But it's in Christ. And, and so you, you start to live that way. But after a while, if you're truly honest with yourself, you'll discover that you're still experiencing defeat at the hands of the sinful nature. So you can let go and let God, and that might feel good, and that might even result in a sense in which you, you feel liberated and free, and, you might, and some of the, the, the attraction of sin or some of the addiction that you were facing for a bit kind of recedes for a little bit because you're, you've got this newfound sense of faith and, and power or something like that. You're kind of motivated by that, but after a, ser- after a bit of time, you'll also come to realize that actually this, is, um, this still isn't working. Um, the victory that was promised still, still eludes. And this, you, you continue to struggle with pride, with jealousy, uh, with materialism, with lust, with impatience or anger, whatever it is. You still eat too much, still waste too much time, criticize too much shade the truth a little too much, too frequently, and indulge in a dozen other sins. And we we just do that by nature. And all the time that we do these things, we hate ourselves for doing them because we know better. Because the Holy Spirit, if we're truly saved and born again, the Holy Spirit's at us and and convicting us of these sins, of of this need, this desire that he places within us. I'm ever more like Christ. And we wonder, what's wrong? Why can't I experience the victory described in all these books and what uh, others seem to have experienced? And we begin to feel something that's, that we're uniquely wrong with us and that somehow our sinful nature must be worse than others. And then you begin to despair and you get depressed and you start to wonder, what, what is it about Christianity, the Christian walk, is God really there? Does Christ exist? Am I saved? You know, all these questions that go through your minds. And there's much confusion on the issue of what God has done for us and what we must do for ourselves. So let's see if we can shed some light on this to clarify that. First of all, let's look at what God's provision is for us. So in the Bible it says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. That's in Romans 6.12. In fact, let's just flip to Romans 6.12 through 14 for for its kind of overall general context there. Romans 6.12 to 14 says... Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace." And so the first thing that we need to realize or notice in this passage that 
uh, is that the pursuit of holiness, this not allowing sin to reign in our mortal bodies, is something that we have to do. Okay, so we, there's an onus there. There's, a, there's an obligation there. It says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, right? So Paul's statement there is one of an exhortation. He, he's addressing himself and this command to our wills. Do not let. In other words, thou shalt not or thou ought not to. And so he says, do not let sin reign, implying that this is something for which we are responsible for doing. Okay, The experience of holiness is not a gift we receive like justification, but something which we are clearly exhorted to work at. In other words, the gift of holiness, you can equate, if you will, holiness with sanctification. And there's this spectrum, if you will, of growing holiness growing sanctification. They're sort of synonymous. And so the idea here is that when we get saved, we are fully justified. Yes, Christ paid it all on the cross, but nevertheless, something is, is different. And, and we're still exhorted to do something in our Christian walk. The second thing to note from Paul's exhortation is that it is based on what he's just said earlier. Note the connecting word there. The first word there is therefore. Therefore, do not let sin. And clearly he meant to say something like, in view of what I've just said earlier in this chapter, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. And to state it another way, we're to pursue holiness because there are certain facts, other facts, that are actually true. And what are those other facts? So let's look at Romans 6, and we'll look at uh, the verses that precede verses 12 there. So Romans 6, 1 through 11, I'll just read it through here, says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or... Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, Certainly, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus." 
then we get that connecting. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And so we look at that and we say, so in answer to the question, shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? Paul says we died to sin. How can we live any longer? Then Paul develops this idea in verses 3 to 11. And it's evident that the word therefore in verse 12 refers back to this fact that we died to sin. And because we died sin, we are not to let it reign in our mortal bodies. All right? If we're to obey the exhortation of verse 12, it is vital that we understand what Paul means by this expression that we died to sin. And as we read this passage, the first thing that we observe is that our dying to sin is as a result of our union to Christ. Right? I mean, it's very clear. Christ died. He was scourged, right? He was scorned. He was ridiculed. He was nailed to a cross. He was lifted up on that cross. He suffered the wrath of God. And then at the very end, he gave up his spirit. And then to make sure that he was actually dead, a Roman soldier pierced his side and blood and water came out. Christ died, physically died. We know that. And because he died to sin, because sin, when you're dead, you're no longer bound to sin. He died to sin. When he died, we died, if we are saved. Therefore, it is apparent that in our dying to sin is not something that we do, but something Christ has done. He died to sin, the value of which then accrues to us or or is, is credited to us for all of us who are united with him. So if Christ is dead, he died, we died, and then he rose, we rose. That's what baptism even symbolizes. The second observation that we can make is that our dying to sin is a fact whether we realize it or not. Okay? We struggle with sin. We do. We wrestle, right? Probably every day we wrestle some degree or another with sin. But the fact is that we died to it. And because Christ died to sin, all who are united with him have died to sin as well. And this is, our, our dying to sin is not something that we do, because Christ did it for us, or something that we make coming true in our experience by reckoning it to be so. So some have misunderstood this. And, and we've gotten this idea that to have died to sin means to somehow be removed from sin's ability to touch us. And I think this is really, really important for us to realize. The, the experience of our lives is that while we are still touched by sin, and, and we'll talk about this in more detail uh, in our next time, we must reckon ourselves. We need to consider. We've got to We've got to put ourselves into this mindset that we are actually dead to sin. And, and we're further told that if we are not experiencing victory over our besetting sins, and many of us aren't, it is because we are not actually truly reckoning on the fact that we died to sin. 
we are indeed to reckon, that is to count or to consider ourselves dead to sin, but a reckoning does not make it true even in our experience. So verses 11 and 12 need to be taken together, and that is because we are dead to sin through our union with Christ, we are not to let sin reign in our mortal bodies. So our daily experience with regard to to sin is determined not by our reckoning, but by our will, by whether we allow sin to reign in our bodies. But our will must be influenced by the fact that we die to sin. In other words, it seems a little bit, it could potentially feel confusing, but the point is that we need to understand that when Christ died on the cross for our sins, We died on the cross with him for our sins. In other words, sin doesn't have mastery over us. We're still in this world, even as Christ, when he was resurrected, was still in this world, and he deal with sinful, fallen people. We we haven't he didn't create the new heaven and earth, he didn't bring the new Jerusalem or anything like that. He still interacted with sinful people human beings. He encountered the two disciples on the, uh, on, on the road, and he explained the scripture to them and opened their eyes, and, and, and suddenly they began to understand what it was that the scripture was talking about. So he's still dealing with people who are still, we, we're still frail, we're weak, we, we don't understand everything that we are called to believe and to understand and to act upon. And so we still struggle and, rec- and, and wrestle. But the fact is that we are no longer um, slaves to sin. And that's what I want to talk about next time is this transfer of what is it? What's the importance? What's the crucial point about Christ dying for our sins and our being dead with Christ and having our sins, our, the penalty of sin, paid for past today, present, and tomorrow, future, and for, forevermore, how does that impact us? How, do we, how are we supposed to live our lives in light of that? And it's really, really crucial that when we struggle with sin, and we all do, that we need to realize that there is a fundamental truth at play here that comes to our rescue. And the fact is that we're not we're not prone to having to sin anymore. We're dead to it. Up until, up until that time when we come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, we are slaves to sin, but we're going to learn and we're going to see the fact that we aren't anymore. And that makes all the difference in the world in our ability to change our lives around and to make them holy and pleasing to the Lord, which is what we're called to do. And that should be our motivation. So I just want to leave you with that. Hopefully that wasn't too terribly confusing, but we will clarify that in, in tomorrow, or tomorrow, the next time we meet, because we're out of time right now to pursue this any further. But if you have any questions about this, please feel free to come and talk to me afterwards, uh, if you can't wait for two weeks from now. But we'll see uh, how we can clarify this and bring this all under, under an understanding in terms of our being dead 
to sin makes all the difference. And our being dead to sin is because Christ died, our Savior died, and we are baptized into his death with him. We'll close in. Father, just thank you so much for this timely reminder out of your word in Romans 6 where we are once again exhorted and reminded by the Apostle Paul to the the Roman church and by extension to us that as a result of the fact that Christ died and that we died with him, that we are no longer dead to sin, that we are no longer enslaved to it, but we have been raised with Christ to new life and to the ability to live lives that are holy and pleasing to you. And we thank you for the possibilities that that opens up for us. We thank you for the fact that we were once enslaved, but we are no longer. We are freed men and women, and that we can indeed uh, have victory over sin as a result of that. And uh, all thanks be to Christ for that, and we want to uh, just give you all the glory and worship that you do because of making that provision for our lives. We thank you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.